Hello and welcome to 30 Yard Dash. This is your podcast host, Annie Merritt, and I'm coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee. 30 Yard Dash features sports and wellness professionals sharing with you their stories, what they value in their career and in their life, the relationships they've built along the way, and they might even share with you what goals they have for the future. 30 Yard Dash is meant to motivate you to thrive in your career and in your life, and maybe even push you to take that step that might have seemed unrealistic before. So sit back, relax, and here we go. Hello and welcome to 30 Yard Dash. I am here with Rachel Helfridge to introduce her a little bit. She is the lead dietitian and founder of Everglow Nutrition. She is also a health coach in corporate wellness at Marquee Health. So Rachel, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Annie. Thanks for being here. I'm so excited. I'm so excited as well. Thank you for taking the time. So just before we get into it, just want to let everyone know how we know each other. Mm -hmm. So I've mentioned it a few times in previous episodes, actually, I think in every episode. (laughs) Um, But we know each other through the Indiana University Dance Marathon. And there's about 5,000 students that are a part of this student-run organization. So I don't even think we had many conversations in person, but we do have a good amount of mutual friends, right? Yes. Yes. IUDM is just this community that makes you feel so connected to everyone a part of it, even if, like you said, we haven't had many like one-on-one conversations. I still feel connected to you because of IUDM. Yes, the feeling is so mutual, and we both have a close mutual friend. Mm-hmm. And so just with that dance marathon connection, you just kind of know what somebody's personality is like or kind of what they hold and what they value. So yeah, I'm really excited to have you and get to know you a little bit better. Um, And just while we're on the topic for IUDM, their 30th anniversary is coming up. So it has been around for so long. And even when you talk to the alumni that started it, they think the same thing. So it's a 36-hour event. You get to know people really well. This year, it's going to be virtual on, I think it's November 6th to the 8th. I'm so interested to Mm -hmm. see how that goes. Yes. That'll be so interesting for them this year. I didn't realize it would be virtual, but obviously. (laughs) Yeah, it should be fun. I'm sure that they have great plans in the works. Well, thanks again for being here. Before we get too deep into it, Rachel, just kind of wanted to kind of take a peek into your life. So, for instance, what did you do this morning? What did your morning look like? Great question. So my alarm went off this morning and I hit snooze and I went went back into bed for 10 minutes. Once I woke up, Love that. yeah, real life, that happens all the time. Uh, then once I woke up, I just brushed my teeth, washed my face, put on some comfy clothes and did a little bit of stretching. Just did some mindful stretching for about 15 minutes, nothing crazy. And then my boyfriend and I made breakfast together. We make oatmeal probably five out of seven mornings a week. So right now with it being fall season, we had some honey crisp apples that we like chopped up and put in the oatmeal with some walnuts. So just a delicious breakfast. And then I led into my workday from there. 
so it's always nice to have something grounding and like slow to start the morning with for me that's essential so those are my things that allowed me to experience a little bit of comfort in the morning before jumping into the work day Mm, I should have eaten before we did this I'm getting hungry (laughs) Uh, well awesome that sounds like a great morning so you're ready to go I'm sure yeah I feel good today Great. So, Rachel, let's just take it back um, and start with where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Springboro, Ohio, which is in between Dayton and Cincinnati, for those of you who don't know. So always grew up and have lived in the Midwest. So Midwest. And what was your relationship with food, sports, wellness? Did you grow up playing a ton of sports? What was that like for you growing up? Sports were always a part of growing up for me from early childhood. Soccer and swimming were my main sports that I started when I was about five years old and carried on with throughout high school. Um, Within there, I also played like lacrosse and volleyball for a short time too. But soccer and swimming were my main sports. And I often refer to sports as being the catalyst to my interest in nutrition So some of the earliest memories that I have about actually paying attention to nutrition were when a coach would talk about like pre-workout fuel or a post-workout meal and the importance of that. So I just found it fascinating to think about how food had an impact on our sports performance. So to bring up, you know, both sports and nutrition, for me, they really did go hand in hand. Um, especially when I started to get into high school and really focus on my, my sports performance as well as nutrition. So nutrition was prevalent in your life starting in high mm-hmm. school. Expand on that conversation with your coaches for us and kind of help us go back and picture that. Yeah, I can remember clearly I had a coach talk about chocolate milk as the best post-workout fuel for its ratio of carbs and protein. And I was just like, looking that up on my own, researching why, really wanting to understand it, and then drinking the chocolate milk. So it was conversations like that that sparked this innocent interest that I had in nutrition to feel my best and perform my best. Um, But also in high school, on the other side is when I really struggled with my relationship to food, um, my relationship to my body, having more of a negative body image and Uh, struggled with that in high school, as probably many people do. So for me, then that led to some disordered eating behaviors where I thought I was doing everything in the name of like, quote unquote, healthy, um, to be healthy. But in fact, my, you know, Mm -hmm. dietary restrictions became so rigid, and it just led to a lot of, um, you know, fear, stress and anxiety around food. Do you mind if we dive into that a little bit? Oh, of course. It's something I talk about a lot, especially with my coaching clients, because we talk so much about one's relationship to food. So when I take you back to where my relationship to food was at its lowest, I, again, remember just a lot of fear, anxiety, and stress around food that I was really preoccupied with. And it took me a while to realize that wasn't quote unquote normal. I would get so stressed out going to restaurants, something that used to be such a fun thing for me to go out with friends or family to a new restaurant, like would just cause so much unnecessary stress and worry about what could I get on the menu to stay within my quote unquote, you know, healthy foods, or if there was something that wasn't healthy that I was comfortable ordering 
on the menu, it would, you know, kind of ruin that entire experience for me. And then if I did eat something that was on that, you know, unhealthy side of things, it would lead to a lot of guilt and shame around food and create this negative spiral, negative self-talk spiral, um, and just ultimately kind of feeling low about myself, which we know nothing positive happens from that place. So right. again, to give you a picture of what it was like at its worst, those are just some of those like feelings I was just trying to navigate on my own, not really sure how to go about getting help once I realized that it wasn't quote unquote normal, but ultimately I had a great support system and family and was able to lean into self-compassion, mindfulness. I found yoga, which was really good for helping me uh, feel better in my body overall. And then ultimately incorporating some of the intuitive eating framework principles, which I didn't know what they were then, but it's looking back, I know it's kind of what I was using. Um, that did help me release some of those rigid food rules that weren't necessary, uh, that did not serve me. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I think disordered eating uh, is more common than a lot of people realize. And I have um, known restaurants to be somewhat of a trigger um, mm -hmm. for that kind of experience. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And my follow-up question with that is being in the nutrition business and being in this field, having had that experience, I think you would be the right person to help other people who are going through these same things. Do you ever feel negatively affected by your field since you have experienced this so deeply? That's a great question too. When I think about where I'm at currently, I feel in a great place to support other women who might be going through a similar experience with disordered eating. But had you asked me like a few years ago or when I didn't feel fully in a good spot with it, it may have been more difficult. I also think like as health practitioners, it's also so, you know, helpful to have a support team around you as well. So whether that be you're also seeing a health coach or a therapist, I think that's important. So along the way, I have like continued to receive support in that sense and currently feel in a great spot in my relationship to food and body. And so that makes me feel confident in being able to help other people. Um, without feeling triggered. That's amazing. And mm -hmm. I think that's awesome that you're able to step up and be able to do that with something that you've experienced. And you credited a lot of your, would recovery be the right word? Yeah, I could say it was a process. Of, or growth? Yeah, recovering and like creating a healthier relationship with food, growth, any of that. Yeah. Yeah, and said family support, any kind of support, and yoga helped a lot. So that's amazing. Good for you for putting the time into the, all, all of that. Yeah, I just, I found yoga at a really unique time in high school. It was really one of the first places that I could slow down and be comfortable in my body without, like, worrying about what other people were thinking of me. Um, so that really did help. And also, again, like, always, like, honor my family and friends and the support systems that were around me and encourage anyone else who might kind of feel alone in that type of situation um, where they're struggling in their relationship to food but don't really know where to turn. Like, you know, there are a bunch of non-diet dietitians, 
um, like myself who are there for support um, in addition to that, you know, close friend and family support network that you might have around you. So it doesn't hurt to reach out for help. Yeah, absolutely. What encouraged you to reach out for help? Again, it was just those experiences where I started to notice the effects that my like rigid dietary restrictions had on how I felt and my overall energy level and sports performance even. So whereas that early experience of being interested in nutrition was geared towards improved sports performance, it quickly turned. And then I was like struggling with completing a hard conditioning practice during soccer or in my longer Mm. swim races, like I was completely like bonking and like not being able to finish those. So I think I could notice, notice it there, notice that my body was actually more under fueled and undernourished. Um, Those experiences really stood out to me and I listened to them. And then also, um, again, just the support of family kind of bringing some of that to my attention as well, because it's difficult to see when you're in it. Absolutely. And I was about to say it is difficult to see it when you're in it. Um, And it takes a lot of self-awareness to be able to do that and have the courage to ask for help and and receive mentally receive that support from family Mm -hmm. and friends. Mm -hmm. So you played soccer and were you were a swimmer mainly. Mm -hmm. Did you end on a high note in high school? Were you able to overcome that uh, before you went into college? Yeah, I think my uh, experiences with sports uh, outside of like those few experiences where I felt like I wasn't performing at my best, just overall, they were a great way for me to develop skills even outside of like physical fitness, but um, like just the whole aspect of like being on a team, teamwork, leadership, all of that I take from sports. And then also like the discipline to be growth oriented in even other areas of my life. So yes, I have like a great taste in my mouth when I think back to high school sports still. Great taste in your mouth. I love that. Well, leading into college. So you attended Indiana university from 2012 to 2016. Um, Mm -hmm. So we met through the organization dance marathon as we um, spoke about in the beginning, but you were also a part of a couple other extracurriculars and overall you majored in dietetics correct Mm -hmm. and then minored in psychology how did those two connect to help you to where you are today yes so I knew I wanted to become a dietitian very early on and to to do that you have to do four years of an like undergraduate in dietetics and then also a one-year internship so for me it was I think (laughs) less of the norm. I feel like a lot of people change majors a lot, but for me, I just went in uh, knowing I wanted to do dietetics and um, continued that all, all the way through. So as a part of that, I did have to take a lot of psychology classes and it was like close enough to where if I added a few, the minor would be there too. So um, they just kind of went hand in hand and I knew very clearly that those were the steps I wanted to take uh, to become a dietitian. That makes sense, um, and it would make me comfortable picturing myself as a client of yours, knowing that you're educated in psychology as well. I think that's so useful. Mm-hmm, definitely. Was that, out of personal curiosity, was that through the School of Public Health, your major? Yes, dietetics was through the School of Public, Public Health. You got that right. Awesome. That's where I graduated from, too. I was a sport marketing and management major. 
Oh, nice. I don't think I realized that. Yep. Go Hoosiers. Yep. <laughs> Hoosiers. <laughs> so how do you think, so you did dance marathon. It looks like you were on the leadership part of charge mm -hmm. and then IU rec sports. You were a group exercise leader. So tell us about those organizations and how you were involved and kind of what your experience was like while you were in school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In addition to like academics, I feel like those extracurriculars were so enriching and again, like so much oriented towards just like growing as a person in college and with IUDM, I know that's the first thing you mentioned and we can both relate to it, um, but for listeners, it was just such a good way to give back and serve others. So to be a part of something that felt larger than myself and that it felt like it was giving to the greater good. For me, that was just really important to always be reminded of how fortunate I am to have uh, all the gifts that I have in my life and give back to those who are struggling um, in this case, like the family and children's at Raleigh Children's Hospital. So for me, that just kept me really grounded and rooted in the importance of giving back and serving others and being appreciative for what I had and also like the gift of my health. Yeah, well, I was going to mention, I think it's not the first thought for those of you that have not participated in Dance Marathon it is all about the kids. That's the main purpose of it for Riley Hospital for Children. But there's also such a prevalence of overall wellness for the families of Riley and the people that participate in it. And so I think that's often forgotten. So that makes sense to me that as a craving to give back, you chose an organization like Dance Marathon that was also involved with wellness. Yeah, it's funny how when you are in a position where you're working to give to others, like it ultimately gives back to you. And I experienced that tenfold with IUDM. And then with CHARGE, so CHARGE stands for Changing Health Attitudes and Actions to Recreate Girls. And IU, I think, was one of the like five to ten campuses to actually have CHARGE. And one of my best friends in college, um, Alyssa Becker, came to me one day and she was like, do you want to bring CHARGE to IU? And I was like, I am totally here for it to support you. And so she took that role of ambassador and bringing charge to IU. And then I took on a VP role with like that first charge exec. And so that organization, it still exists at IU and exists across so many colleges right now is such a positive organization for helping women explore different types of exercise in a comfortable way, a comfortable setting, connecting with other women through it. And then also kind of like what we might talk about a little bit more with joyful movement, but one of their taglines is liberating girls from the elliptical. Mm. So it's that sense that like, you don't just have to like go to the gym to be active. Like you can find other forms of movement that are like life giving, energizing and, um, you know, spark joy in you versus just thinking like exercise has to be limited to just that sense or that picture of like being in the gym on the elliptical. So a great organization with Charge. Charge is definitely a great organization. So you mentioned with academics, you did undergrad at IU, your four years there, and then needed to do an internship following that for your certification. So you attended Vanderbilt University, which is in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I am. Um, so mm -hmm. you were a dietetic intern in the medical center. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. 
All right. So how was that experience for you just overall? Yes, I loved the year living in Nashville, um, being at Vanderbilt. It was such a great community. And as a dietetic intern, I did have the inpatient clinical setting work. And then I also had outpatient community work in addition to food service. So as a dietitian, when you are a student, you're still kind of doing a little bit of everything. Sure. And overall, just again, amazing learning experience and amazing time for me to still be a student, but also be practicing and like having patients, having clients, and getting a little taste of multiple areas of like where a dietitian could work to ultimately figure out like exactly what I wanted to do once I was a dietitian. So you were working inpatient and outpatient. For those of us like myself (laughs) that are not at all in the medical field, um, can you describe for us what that meant and specifically, if you're able, what you were doing with your patients in that time? Yes. So inpatient clinical looks very much um, just like screening patients for malnutrition. Um, If people are unable to eat orally, you know, figuring out tube feeds, things like that. Um, maybe someone's, you know, inpatient for cardiac rehab. And so you're helping educate the client on a heart healthy diet, things like that. Um, And then outpatient becomes a little bit more about that um, diet education therapy piece. So if someone was newly diagnosed with diabetes or heart disease, um, maybe they had a new GI condition that they were trying to navigate. So as a dietitian, you are the one working with them to uh, not only inform them of the nutrition guidelines that are, you know, important for um, healthy interventions for their disease and their disease management, but also like just figuring out, okay, what is this going to look like for you though on a day-to-day life, um, you know, within your preferences and lifestyle and things like that. So I definitely loved once I was more in that outpatient role, doing more one-on-one counseling, getting to know the whole person versus just inpatient where it was kind of shorter, quicker in and out of patient rooms. And then outpatient, you have a little bit of a little bit more time working with someone. If that answers your question, kind of the difference between inpatient and outpatient. Yes, it does answer my question. And with that counseling, and you said you enjoyed getting to know your patients better, Mm-hmm. It makes sense for you to understand their history, to understand their lifestyle. Did you feel like mm-hmm. it mutually built your relationship to where maybe they were more willing to take on those practices and help themselves? Definitely. An important part of counseling is that building rapport. So the more time you have with someone on that, the better. And in addition to the counseling skills, I was learning as a dietitian to provide like medical nutrition therapy. We also had a well coaches training as interns at Vanderbilt. And so that included more health coaching skills as well. So between motivational interviewing, like medical nutrition therapy, counseling skills, and then those coaching skills, um, I was able to utilize all of those to find a way of like working one-on-one with people that it wasn't just about food because it's never just about food. Um, and then you can, you know, hold space for the entire person. Um, and that's, that's where I found like my favorite sweet spot, uh, in working in dietetics. I love that you just said that, that it's not just about food. It's never just about food because Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what your, like that describes your role. 
it's like there's so much more as I'm talking with you there's so much more involved so much preparation work and education and you know empathy and all these things that go into it that it's so much more than food I feel like that's just maybe the maybe not Mm -hmm. the start but that's just one piece of it Mm -hmm. yeah you could say as like one piece of the puzzle or like one piece of the pie um, when you look at well-being as a whole right so was this your first, your internship, was this your first work experience related to the field? Yeah, in college, I did like some volunteer experiences, like working at food pantries and things like that in the community. But in terms of inpatient clinical, that was my first inpatient clinical setting was at Vanderbilt. At Vanderbilt. And then you went on to work full time as a health coach for Marquee Health, which you're still currently doing, correct? Yes, I still do corporate wellness coaching. Great. So what brought you to that position? Um, Again, it was just that experience of realizing that I wanted to work one-on-one with clients in that more so coaching setting where you get to work with the whole person. I liked the idea of working on the side of preventative health and wellness uh, versus um, kind of like after the fact, if that makes sense. So sure. within, um, you know, moving to Chicago, there was, there were those, you know, corporate wellness coaching opportunities and that's, it just kind of happened, you know, sometimes those, um, the you know, stories align where you, you move to a new place and then the type of job, you know, opens up. So it was just kind of serendipitous in, in that sense. Um, but I was really happy, uh, getting my, starting place in dietetics as a dietitian um, in that corporate wellness setting. Corporate wellness setting, I can't imagine what that would be like, especially I would imagine you work with group clients. Is that correct? Yeah. So basically like the model would be, you know, the company I worked for has multiple clients that are entire employee groups. So then the, and the employers of these companies have access to, health coaching and, you know, various, um, you know, nutrition education programs and things like that. So there were tons of people utilizing the health coaching services across all of those companies. So very quickly, I got to work with a wide range of people, uh, a high volume of clients, um, which has its pros and cons. Sure. But yeah. So how many clients would you work with at once? It would be a lot. So (laughs) (laughs) too many to count, (laughs) too many to count. I have them all in a spreadsheet somewhere. I know how many clients I've coached over the past few years, but it, it was great in a sense. Like I said, there are pros and cons. You get to work with a high number of people and a lot of people have access to health coaching that maybe wouldn't have free access to health coaching. Yeah. What a great benefit. Yeah. It tends to be maybe shorter timeframes for those calls though. So Part of me wanting to start my own practice was to work with a smaller volume of people and more of a like high quality, longer calls um, in in more intimate, not intimate, like in the terms of close, but just that like greater capacity for more of a coaching relationship, um, if that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. So let's get into that. Everglow <laughs> Nutrition. You are the founder and lead dietitian for Everglow Nutrition. 
you kind of explained it a little bit of why you wanted to start it. You wanted a closer relationship with your clients and be able to control that setting a little bit more, it sounds like. But bring us back to the beginning of that, the the bare mm-hmm. bones of Everglow. Mm-hmm. What was the genesis like for this practice? Yes, I just had this idea in my head always of like how cool would it be to just have my own practice and in, in addition to, you know, my dietetic skills, you get to use some like business skills and creative skills. So it just sounded fun to me. And I just leaned into it. And when I think about like the, the genesis or some founding principles of Everglow Nutrition, it was really just started to be able to provide weight inclusive nutrition coaching that focused on the whole person, a concept we've been talking a little bit about today. And I wanted to provide more people with that non-judgmental space to really slow down, tune inwards, and explore what living a nourished life or what health means to them on their own terms. So would you consider that your mission of Everglow? Yes, I would say that's part of my mission. My mission is also really, and I'll get into this a little bit more, I I follow a non-diet approach. So my mission is really to help more people break free from dieting and like reconnect to their bodies so that they can live empowered in that sense, um, energized from food, and then just also free of, of diet culture. So I like to help people break free from, from dieting and from restrictions, like we talked about a little bit earlier. Yes, breaking free from dieting and restrictions. And I love that you said the word empowering. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I kind of got the chills a little bit when you said that because I don't. I don't think of. I guess I'm growing a little bit in my personal relationship with food, but I've never thought to be empowered by that sort of relationship. But go further in for us. So, what is a diet? What is diet culture? When you speak mm. about that. Okay, like two separate words there. Well, so the word diet is is really just like the food that you eat. However, the term diet has become such a a word that's controlled by diet culture. So diet culture is like a system of beliefs that worships thinness and like praises like a smaller body. So then people in larger bodies uh, tend to be drawn into that mentality of feeling like they need to be lose weight in order to feel worthy, which can really disrupt someone's relationship with food, obviously. So diet culture would just be like the system in society that keeps putting that messaging out that tells you you need to go on a diet. Um, You know, if you're not dieting, you're doing it wrong. If you're failing a diet, that's your fault. It's this way of eating is the only right way of eating. When we really know that even if we all ate the same and moved the same, we would still have different body shapes and sizes. Yes. Say it for the people in the back, <laughs> Rachel. I love it. Oh, I, yes, that's so true. So where do you think this diet culture stems from? You said society, but is it because of advertising? Like where did where do we get this in our head about that we should be thinner than we are? it goes way back and there are so many better resources and books that can educate you on this more than I can. There's a book, okay. um, anti-diet by Christy Harrison. That is a great starting place. If you want to learn more about diet culture, her definition of it is, um, very well-rounded, 
But as you mentioned, the advertising we're exposed to on a daily basis, even the conversations we have with friends and family around food, like that that diet culture can kind of come back to our language and be part of like the messaging that even we're telling ourselves or our friends about food too. So I would say kind of the advertisement, beauty standards, and even just like trickles down to how we talk about food. And that just made me think I was speaking with a friend that's currently recovering from an eating disorder and they were explaining to me their perception of diet culture and kind of how that works and they explained to me they said food has no moral value it -hmm. is not bad nor good Mm -hmm. which really spoke to me what do you have to say about that quote yeah that's great she grasped that concept when we label foods as good or bad which diet culture teaches us to do that like I grew up you know thinking like certain foods are good and bad certain foods are healthy and unhealthy Whereas now I try to use the words like nutrient dense foods and then more so like fun foods. So I try to kind of change the language I'm using because when you constantly label foods as good or bad, then when you eat a quote unquote bad food, you then tend to feel bad. Um, Or it's like this pass fail mentality of, oh, like that was a bad choice. Now I'm a failure, which can lead to those feelings of guilt, experiencing guilt after eating certain foods. And then we know that could connect to shame. So there is that then possibility of more of a negative spiral. Um, If you keep seeing food as good and bad, and then when you eat the bad foods, it leads to that vicious cycle that again, it's just, it's so empowering when people are able to break free from that and view food without those labels. So the labels are important, and you mentioned nutrient-dense and fun food. What are examples of each of those types of food? Great question. So, like, obviously carrots are going to be more nutrient-dense than, say, carrot cake. But that doesn't make carrot cake a bad food. Um, Carrot cake definitely has a place. I know it's my boyfriend's favorite dessert on his birthday. Like, that's his dessert of choice. That's awesome. And I love the act of, like, making carrot cake, enjoying it. It brings so much satisfaction and even outside of like physical health, we talk about emotional wellness and like food is emotional too. It's um, a form of celebration sometimes and it's a form of comfort other times too and that's okay. So when we're able to look at big picture wellness and make choices that nourish like our entire well-being, like physical, emotional health, um, you do start to discover that like all food has a place. And so it doesn't mean you have to eat carrot cake every day when you don't want it. Um, it just means you have a choice. And like, there are times when you might want carrots and there are times when you might want carrot cake. And both of that is okay. Um, so it takes away, again, we're replacing good and bad with those labels like nutrient dense and then like fun foods or play foods. At least that's like some of the language I use to help change that up. That language is definitely helpful to me. And I probably will have carrots and carrot cake later this weekend because <laughs> now I'm getting them. <laughs> so that's great. You use those labels to help your clients and you, you have set principles in your practice that you use with your clients. What are those and walk us through the process of that? So I use a little bit of intuitive eating, mindfulness, simplified nutrition, and also self-compassion as like practices to draw upon within coaching sessions. When I think about my personal nutrition principles, it's really just boils down to 
focusing on nourishment over deprivation, flexibility over rigid diet rules, and then long-term sustainable changes over short-term fixes, um, which boils down to kind of like releasing the diet mentality and then, you know, taking on this like intuitive eating approach. And so intuitive eating, uh, for those of you don't, who don't know, is a framework of 10 principles. It was founded by two dietitians, and it has been highly studied as a, you know, evidence-based approach to health without that diet lens. So it helps people with um, their, you know, enhancing their mind-body connection, learning to care for their body from a place of respect, like not a place of punishment. Uh, learning to connect to their internal cues around hunger and fullness, uh, learning how to cope with emotions. Um, so that way you're not always turning to food to cope with emotions. And if you do, that's okay too. So it incorporates that concept and it also incorporates joyful movement. So really exercising and feeling the difference versus feeling like you have to exercise or you should be exercising. So that's a little bit more about intuitive eating, which I definitely use um, within my own framework. And then I have my own method that kind of brings all of this together. Um, but that gives you a taste of what intuitive eating is like. So you have your own method and explain some of the principles within it and how prevalent intuitive eating is with your practice. When your clients come to you, what kind of a place are they in or what situations are they dealing with that you're able to help them with? Yeah, most of my clients are young professionals, mostly women. So ambitious women who are just like tired of turning to diets for the answers. They're tired of the yo-yo cycle of dieting. And for some people, they come with that negative body image or they don't feel comfortable in their skin. And they're just like craving to feel comfortable in their body again or for the first time. Some people might also have other conditions like a GI discomfort or a GI condition or for females, something like PCOS, where they may have heard a certain way of eating that's good for that, but they haven't really received solid guidance on it. So what does PCOS stand for? Oh, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, okay. Yes. So that is a, a condition like, again, only females would have that. Um, but some, some women I've worked with have had that. And then if you Google like diet for PCOS, it's going to pop up with like, do eat this, don't eat that, don't eat that. And it can be really triggering again to that old diet mentality. So they're really just looking for more guidance to heal their relationship with food and also learn how to manage maybe a condition from a place of like self-love versus from that place of like, like do or don't diet mentality. Mm. So you explained your process a little bit in achieving this self-love and comfortable relationship with food in your own body. And we talked about how you have a background in psychology and, you know, building rapport with people. But I feel like emotionally to help someone get to that point of feeling comfortable, that's doesn't sound like it's very measurable. How do you go about mm -hmm. that? on the emotional aspect of things. Oh, I guess, how do you know when someone's comfortable in their body? How do you know they've completed their goal? So when I begin working with any client, and very early on, we start with what is a wellness vision. 
And so basically in a wellness vision, you're kind of looking ahead, imagining your life like three months from now and seeing it through that lens of your ideal state of health and well-being. And so as I lead my clients through that process, they're able to come up with like the descriptor words and the things that they can see themselves doing in that state of well-being. Um, they can really bring that vision to life and give it words. And so from that, we'll develop aligned action steps or goals that ladder up to that ideal wellness vision. So with any of my clients, their goals are very much like intuitive to them. So like one client's goals might be totally different from another client that I'm working on and that I'm working with. So first and foremost, like I think just the sense of the person coming up with what makes sense for them is huge versus saying, okay, here's your goals and achieve this. It's like a co-creation process of coming up with those goals. And then for things like, okay, to feel less anxious around food in terms of measuring that, you can always use like a scale of like one to 10. Okay. Like on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the highest, like how anxious do you feel around food most of the time? And then kind of readdressing that after we've done some work together, you know, how has this number decreased? Um, or another like measurable is like how often people are thinking about food. Cause typically like when you are stuck in diet mentality, you're thinking about food like all the time. So percentage of your thoughts, how often are you thinking about food? And then how can we lower that percentage? And then in terms of like feeling comfortable in your body, um, I mean, you can go from a state of like negative body to like neutral body image to positive body image. Okay. And along the way, there's probably a lot of ups and downs, but that's going to be really intuitive for each person. And there might just be this aha breakthrough moment of, wow, I never thought of my body in this way. And like, I feel a degree more comfortable in my body. Or I always looked at my stomach as something that was like protruding. And I didn't, I couldn't look at, you know, myself in the mirror comfortably. And now I'm here realizing that this is such an essential part of my core and I can look at my body through a lens of appreciation. Those are the types of shifts that I see happen with my clients. And that must be so rewarding when you do see that shift. Yes. It's one of my favorite parts to get to celebrate wins with my clients. Yeah, that makes sense. And with every thing you mentioned with giving back and whatever avenue it may be, I feel like you also deserve to join in on that joy and that excitement um, if you're willing to put in all of this effort to help others. So that's amazing. So congrats on Everglow. I know you started this about a year ago. Is that correct? I started Everglow at the beginning of this year. Uh, so at this year. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how many months has it been active? Uh, so like 10, January? Yeah, so like 10, <laughs> nine, 10. Okay, awesome. So you started Everglow at the beginning of January and here you are proudly talking about your process and your practice overall. That's amazing. Oh. But let's reel it back into you and kind of what your personal life is like today. So you mentioned joyful movement in your practice and you do practice this on your own. Um, through yoga a little bit, you mentioned, is that, um, your favorite way of joyful movement, your favorite activity? I love yoga. I also love just like staying open to various forms of exercise. So I 
Currently, okay. I'm getting into cycling too, so this is new for me. But I'm finding a joy with that and a lot of movement, um, like yoga, for example. I love slowing down. I love not pushing myself. You're pushing yourself in a different way. But cycling has made yes. me a little bit more competitive with like pushing my own growth again. So that's been fun as well lately. So are you, you're out on the road with a bike cycling. How many miles do you go? Well, are you doing big rides? Does it not matter? Are you going for fun or what's that experience like for you? Well, starting indoors. <laughs> so okay. Been, yeah, okay. indoor bike, um, been doing Peloton in their like power zones class. So that's really what has pushed me again with cycling. Ultimately, I want to be able to do longer road rides and all of that, but I'm not quite quite there yet. But it's something that I want to work towards. That's awesome. Good for you. I think that's a really fun activity mm-hmm. and something new to focus on. Mm-hmm. So with this joyful movement, you enjoy cycling, yoga, you mentioned you spend time with your boyfriend, you guys cook meals together. How do you balance your two jobs and your personal life at the same time. I feel like it comes with a constant reminder to practice what I preach. So when you talk about wellness as your job, it's like you're always reminded like of your own health and wellness. And I think in order to give, it is so essential that you replenish your own cup. So I always remind myself of that. We talked a little bit about morning routines, and I do think routines help with just that sense of groundedness. So starting my day mindfully is key, whether that be just 15 minutes or an hour if I have more time. So I would say that's a staple for me. And as a part of that in the mornings, I've really been loving setting intentions and affirmations. So that, in addition to meditation, have just been some like grounding activities for me lately. That's what life has looked like lately. Um, Sure. So these intentions, are these daily intentions and affirmations weekly or what does the timeline for your intentions look like? Yeah, I like to set monthly intentions. And then most days I would say a journal and I can kind of remind myself of those intentions, but also if like something new is coming through, I welcome space for that too. And then the affirmations could be just like any emotion that's like strong that I'm experiencing that's kind of what I might be, you know, writing affirmations around. Okay. So journaling a lot. Mm -hmm. Big journaler. I enjoy journaling too. So we have that in common for sure. I'm more of a, it's not very much of a routine for me, but anytime I have an extreme emotion, whether that's good or bad, I kind of just sit with my journal for however long it takes and pretty much just vent to the paper in front of me. So it's very mm-hmm. relaxing. <laughs> it is. Yes. Awesome. Well, thanks for kind of taking us in your routine a little bit. Overall, what is your favorite part, but also what is the biggest challenge of working in the dietetic field? Great question. I would say the biggest challenge is when you're a dietitian and you like introduce yourself to someone new, I feel like they assume you're the food police. So I've just had that experience (laughs) a few times of where I introduced myself as a dietitian and the person I meet is like, oh, well, don't see me eating this cupcake. Or they feel like they have to like hide their, you know, food choices from me. Or they're like asking like, oh, well, what do you eat? And the last thing I want to come across as is like the food police or eat like me. So 
like we said, nutrition is not that. If we all ate the same and moved the same, we would still have different body shapes and sizes. So that would be the challenge. And then the joy would be what we talked about before, celebrating wins with clients. I am, I could just sit, tell so many stories about my favorite client wins, um, but just as a whole, that does affirm me and give me the extra like motivation to continue on this path and continue spreading the mission of Everglow Nutrition. Continuing to spread the mission of Everglow Nutrition. So with that, what are your current career goals? How are you going to continue? Yes, so I do want to continue helping more women break free from dieting, as I mentioned, as a part of my mission. So currently doing that through one-on-one coaching, I see that continuing, but I'd also love to expand into group coaching, maybe an online course, uh, podcasting, who knows? I love it. I've loved getting to connect to you over a podcast today. So um, yes. just trying to stay open to creative ways to share the message. Awesome. So Rachel, just to close, I have a few general questions for you. The first one being, what does wellness mean to you? I know there is some normalization or myths of wellness and everyone can perceive it differently. So what does wellness mean to you? Yes, I interpret it very closely to how I interpret the word ever glow so ever as a prefix means always or continuously so ever glow I interpret as this lasting glow that shines from within when we nourish the mind body spirit and so to me that's wellness it's choosing to nourish your body in ways that feel good to you physically emotionally mentally and not being one or the other I love that and I love that that ties into your title of it just matches your mission perfectly. So that's great. A great perspective. So I'm curious, and you seem like a very well-rounded person. You've had a lot of experiences. So I think this answer will be interesting. Who is your hero and why? And this can be personal or professional hero. Yes. My personal, personal hero is my dad and when you referenced the Dash poem, I immediately thought of him. So he died three years ago from lymphoma and so much sooner than anyone expected. But as I reflect on his life and his teaching, like that Dash was so fully lived. And he instilled in me that desire to help others and serve others. Um, he was a physician. So through his profession, I saw him do that. And I was able to find my own way of serving others. But he has always taught me to do good work, be kind, and a lot about humility, I would say, too. He was one of the most like humble people. So I just try to emulate his, his humility and his compassion every day. I love that, and I love that you guys mm -hmm. get to share that. Yes. So looking to someone that is hoping to pursue a career in the nutrition world, maybe wants to become a dietitian, or just in the field as a whole, what advice would you give to them as they're starting out? Just to get started in any small way. I started as a group exercise leader way before I was an RD, just because I was eager to work in the health and wellness space. 
And so there are so many th- different things that you can do within wellness. And I think it's just important to start exploring what you're curious about and let that curiosity lead you to ultimately what you're most passionate about within the field. Awesome. So Rachel, what excites you right now? The first thought was just that I'm excited about what I've been working on creating. So I'm working on a free insider training where I'm going to teach my method um, to anyone who joins the training or downloads the training. Um, And that is the method I use to help my clients break free from dieting. So that excites me. I've had fun creating it, and I'm excited to share that with more people. Oh, that's awesome. So when when are you planning to get that out into the world? In October, hopefully. So October. <laughs> this month. <laughs> Let's go. That's awesome. Yes. Okay, so you have big plans coming up. You are helping women, and you're just doing the most, and I love it. You are helping women all over with their relationships with their bodies and with food and helping people get into the field by starting this training. So there's a lot to look forward to with you and Everglow Nutrition. So how can people follow you? How can we keep up? So on Instagram, I'm at Everglow Nutrition, and my website is everglownutrition.com. You can sign up for my newsletter as well. So every Sunday, I send an email with like a high vibe self-care toolkit type email where we, you know, I include articles on mindfulness, intuitive eating, um, journal intentions, affirmations. So very much in line with what we've discussed today. Wow, I'm signing up for that right when we get done here. I'm excited awesome. about it. I'll send you the link if you can't find it. Cool. <laughs> okay, well, Rachel, thank you so, so much for being here today. I really appreciate how vulnerable you have been in just sharing all your experiences and how you got to where you are today. I am really excited for Everglow Nutrition and to see where it goes. So thank you again so much for being here you. I so appreciate you holding space for this conversation and it was wonderful connecting. Awesome. Well, you heard it. Go follow Everglow Nutrition. (laughs) See (laughs) y'all.